Hi, I'm Dr. Don Welch, licensed marriage and family therapist, and welcome to the My Therapist Says podcast, where I moderate discussions between various relationship experts from medical doctors to licensed mental health professionals to enrich relationship skills and communication. This podcast seeks to bring healing and hope to what matters most in our lives, our relationships. If you would like even more content or to speak with a therapist, you can visit us at www.enrichingrelationships.org. Thank you and enjoy. Good evening. I'm Dr. Don Welch and welcome to My Therapist Says, a group of mental health professionals here to try to respond to and talk about and perhaps give new insight or renewed insight about relationships. So we're certainly glad you're here this evening. May I give just a little bit of instructions before we move ahead? Tonight's topic is best parenting and grandparenting skills. So welcome. Each and every one of us here has some sort of influence over children. So we're glad that you're here as we work together on this very important topic. The way that we function with My Therapist Says is that we invite you with a three by five card to write down your question about the topic. And if you have a question that's just burning on your heart this evening, you may want to even write that down now. Make sure that you have a three by five card. If I can do that by asking you to raise it to make sure you have a three by five card, thank you. All you need to do is write the question on the three by five card Raise it in the air at any time during the evening that one of our hosts will come by and they'll receive that from you and they'll bring that to me as the moderator up front. And then we will run the evening by raising the questions from uh, you, the audience. So it's really like having a mental health professional in your living room uh, where you can respond to and dialogue with someone that's going to try to work with these questions and thoughts. So we welcome you this evening. May I have a word of prayer, and then we're going to move right into our evening of discussion. We'll have about a 20-minute presentation with PowerPoint. You may notice that you do have a handout that uh, you have with you that was given to you as you walked into the auditorium this evening. You'll be able to follow the PowerPoint by reading uh, this particular handout that you have in your hand. I hope that will be valuable to you. And the audio tapes of My Therapist Says are available uh, on Skyline Church. Uh, org. You can go right to our website and you can see and listen to that if you have someone in another state or another country. We've had people from various countries listen in. Uh, it might be a valuable uh, treat for them as well. So again, welcome tonight. Let's begin, shall we, with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of children. In fact, uh, you spoke so highly of children. In fact, we know that you even would uh, get at eye level with children and validate them by listening to them, and your heart beats for children. In fact, you call us your children, and then you talk about us being your bride, um, and thank you for this relationship that you give to us and the precious children that surround each and every one of us. We all have influence on children. May it be godly. May it be uplifting. May it be mentally helpful and encouraging. And we pray tonight as we look at this and talk about and discuss and think on this important topic of good parenting and grandparenting skills, the best that we can give, we pray that we would hear from you most importantly. We know that you created each and every person that is here tonight or perhaps uh, listening on audio tape or through live streaming, that as they are listening, they're listening to you because you have a word of truth, a word of hope, a word of insight 
a word of encouragement for each and every one of us. Thanks be to God where two or three are gathered for your purpose, the remarkable always happens. And we look forward to and anticipate that to happen this very evening. So we give you praise and honor for what you're going to accomplish as our hearts are open to you and the power and gentle speaking of the Holy Spirit. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If I may just quickly introduce you to our panel members, you may see on the uh, overhead our rather large screens in front of you here tonight that it's given the background of our presenters. Roxanne Strauss is right next to me. Uh, she's going to be our presenter this evening, Dr. Joe Price, who is just immediately to her left. Aaron Cragen, who is with us again this evening. We're so glad that all of these, including Aaron, who's with us, are with us tonight, and also Dennis, Reverend Dennis Estelle, who is with us again. So we have a tremendous panel for you this evening. I know you're going to find it very delightful. Each and every one has children. Our Reverend Dennis Estelle has, and his lovely wife is with us tonight. Uh, Ruth, they have how many? Five grandchildren. He just looks too young for that. I always keep saying that, but we are, he is our, our, our grandparent here tonight to give us tremendous insight from personal experience as well as professional. So without any further introductions, Roxanne is going to uh, uh, introduce us to this topic with PowerPoint, your handout, and please, if you would, start writing down those questions and just raise them at any time that you would like to have one of our hosts come by and pick up your question. Thank you. Roxanne. Okay, so um, one of my favorite quotes uh, on parenting is um, from John Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden, perhaps it takes courage to raise children. Um, I think we all can agree that we have times, so many times of joy as parents with our children, but we also have quite a lot of challenges, so it definitely takes courage to raise children. Um, I want to take a step back and look at parenting, um, step back from all of the nitty-gritty of parenting, and above all else, relationship. That's kind of the umbrella that I have over parenting, um, is the relationship that we have with our kids is the most important thing. So as I talk tonight, um, think about... Um, is this good for our relationship, for my relationship with my kids? And as we take a step back, um, it's the same as if we, when we read the Bible, there's all kinds of stories and um, narratives and things going on in people's lives in the Bible. But if we take a step back and look at the Bible narrative, we see the big picture of the Bible. Um, we see the story of creation, the fall, and then the rest of the story is redemption and God bringing us back into a relationship with him. And so that's how I like to see our relationship with our kids. Um, we want to have that relationship with them, and that's kind of the big picture of parenting. So um, on the next slide... Um, Raising kids is part joy and part guerrilla warfare. Um, Ed Asner uh, had that statement. Parenting is one of the most rewarding experiences and one of the most challenging experiences. It can be a roller coaster of joy and sadness, contentment and anxiety, 
management and chaos, status quo, and multiple transitions. We've got a lot of transitions going on in our lives, and especially in parenthood and, and raising children. So the first point that I want to make, I'm going to make three points in this talk tonight. The first point I want to make is use opportunities to connect and redirect. And that would be the next slide. So what do we mean by connect and redirect? First of all, it's important to um, consider the brain. We've got two sides of our brain. You've got the right side, which is kind of the more emotional side, where you have images and emotion, nonverbal, um, personal experience. That's the right side of our brain, right hemisphere. And then the left side is the more logical. I like to do an L for the left side. And it's logical, literal, linguistic, and linear. So we've got the right side and the left side, emotional and logical. And it's important to remember that children, especially young children, tend to use or, or tend to be more right-brain dominant. They tend to be more emotional. We all know that if we've raised children, that um, they're not, they usually don't use logic very well. Um, so it's important for us to remember that children will be children. Um, so imagine, um, go ahead for the, the next slide. Um, imagine using only the right side of your brain. That's the Calvin picture up there. When uh, children use the right side of their brain, they can be in a temper tantrum or just totally out of control or just, you know, they're just completely in the emotional side of their brain. Um, and we have to admit, as, an, as adults, we often go to our right side of our brain, too. So we can kind of understand that uh, where children are at when they're using their emotional side of their brain. OK, for the next slide. So even when children's feelings seem nonsensical to us. They might be screaming, crying, or upset, or mad, and we can't figure out why. It's important to remember that their feelings are real to them. And it's, I like to use um, the metaphor. Um, this, this metaphor is in a, I've used two books in the back of your notes, uh, only two books. There's a plethora of, of parenting books you could read for the rest of your life, but I wanted to give you two books. Um, the Whole Brain Child is one that I highly recommend reading. Um, and um, there's a metaphor in there of a child using their emotional side of their brain. It's like they're drowning in their emotion. And the metaphor would be like a child drowning or swimming in a swimming pool and, and drowning. And you wouldn't yell out to the child, okay, now what you need to do is bring your arm up and, and bring it over this way. And then now, now start swimming, bring your other arm up, okay, and, and turn your head and breathe. You wouldn't be using the logic of how to swim. Instead, you would jump into the pool, grab the child, and pull that child out. That's the metaphor of connecting with a child emotionally. Um, so you're connecting with their emotions. And what we want to do is connect with the emotion. And when we connect with them, then we want to help them use the logical side of their brain. OK, so an example of connecting with emotions. Let's just say that you're out. 
you just come through the front door with one of your children. Maybe you've gone shopping with them and gotten some things for school, or um, you just went and took one of your children out to go shopping, and you come through the door, and the other child looks at you and says, you always do things for her. You never do anything for me, and turns around and goes in the room and slams the door. Okay. Probably your first reaction is more on your emotional side, and you think, I always do something for you guys. I'm always doing things for you. I never do anything for myself. Or um, another way to respond that we can often do is, that is bad manners. We don't act that way in this house. You come out here right now and apologize, or you're going to be grounded. Okay, so that's... Some, sometimes how we respond, right? So instead, when, when I'm talking about connecting, the child has gone into the room, you can knock on the door, hey, Johnny, um, come in, sit down next to him, maybe take and put your hand on his back, rub him or touch him, or I don't know if it's comfortable, if you're used to hugging, hug him and say, you know, I know this can be really hard. It, it feels like I'm ignoring you. And, you know, I, I really don't want to ignore you. I don't mean to do that. You know I love you. That's the connecting part. It's connecting, using facial expression and saying, hey, I get how you feel. I understand. Okay? Usually when you, as an adult, someone connects with you in that way, I imagine you kind of feel heard, understood. That's what we're trying to do with our children when we connect with them emotionally. And usually... This isn't a magic bullet. It doesn't always work. It's not like, you know, you can do this and every time your child's going to just go, oh, I love you too, mom or dad. Or, um, but it tends to calm down the child enough to now connect with the uh, rational side of the brain. So you're connecting emotionally, calming the child down. And then, so, you know, what are we going to do about it? What can I do so that you feel like, you know, that I'm not ignoring you? Then you go into the logical problem-solving side. That's what we want to do. We're trying to train them to go from the emotional side over to the logical side. And it does take training. It takes, it takes teaching. So that's what um, connect and redirect is. The second point I want to make is um, give your children choices. And uh, the quote we have up there is, too often we give children answers to remember rather than problems to solve. Choices allow for problem solving and self-efficacy. Let's see. Okay. Uh, you can go ahead to the next slide. So um, making good choices is something to be learned. It's something children have to learn. So an example of um, giving choices to a smaller child is, now would you rather wear your red sweatshirt or your blue jacket? Or um, what else do I have up there? I'm going to check here. Okay, would, it, it, imagine if you're on the phone and you're talking on the phone and the kids are really loud in the room and uh, you say, hey guys, would you rather be quiet out here or do you want to play loudly in your room? Okay, you're giving them a choice to choose. For a teenager, you know, um, do you want to pay for the speeding ticket out of your bank account, or do you want to have us take it out of your allowance once a week? Okay, you're giving them a choice. How do you want to do this? 
Okay. Instead of using what we'd call fighting words, put that jacket on right now, it's cold outside, or, uh, you know, be quiet, I'm on the phone. Um, or, <laughs> I'm not paying for that speeding ticket. That's your fault, you're paying for it. Okay. Um, so why does giving choices work? Children have to think what to do. It gives them, they start planning and problem solving from a very young age so that by the time they're 18, hopefully they're gonna be able to make their own choices. You're not gonna be giving them the choices anymore. They're gonna be, have so much practice, they're gonna be able to make their own, own choices, good or bad. Choices allow children to make mistakes and learn from the consequences. We have to allow them to choose, make the wrong choice. And if they do, hopefully they'll learn from their consequences if they have an ex enough experience making choices. Um, this one I think is, the, the next one I think is one of the most important ones. Choices allow children to recognize that we trust them to think through their decisions and it encourages self-confidence and responsibility and a positive relationship. So if you give your kids choices, you're not just telling them what to do and indoctrinating them basically, but you're telling them, I trust you, you make the choice, I trust you to make your choice. And that's good for the relationship. So uh, if they do make the wrong choice, what happens? Oftentimes there's natural consequences, right? Um, if the child chooses not to wear the coat, they go out and they're cold, maybe. If, they're, if they freeze all day long, it's not gonna kill them. Probably tomorrow, if it's cold, they're gonna wear their coat. They've learned their lesson. Um, however, I have a child who didn't wear his coat all year last year. I kept saying it's cold outside. And he didn't wear his coat all year. You know what? I was the one who was wrong because he, I, I felt cold. How many of us feel the cold and we think our children ought to put their coats on, right? He didn't wear his coat all year last night. Year never complained. So oftentimes, you know, they're the ones who are, who are right. So those are the natural consequences. Um, so there's also enforced consequences because we have to remember when we give our kids choices, there's always a third choice. So what's the third choice? They can choose not to, to take our choices, right? They may choose their own choice. And sometimes those choices are things that we really, really don't want them to do. And if they do it, we've told them, no, you can't do that. Of course, we have to enforce um, a consequence. We, this is not leaving the boundaries open. We have to have boundaries. We have to enforce consequences at times. So, um, so be ready for that third choice. If you have to um, enforce a consequence, um, be clear about what the consequence is. Obviously, you need to tell them ahead of time, this is the consequence if you choose not to do this. And then be sure that you don't have any empty threats. Be sure that if you give a consequence, it's one that you can follow through. And um, I'm guilty in saying, okay, if you guys leave the dishes in the sink, I'm not gonna be making dinner anymore. And I can't follow through on that because I make dinner. And so I still have the problem with the dishes in the sink and I haven't figured that one out yet. Um, so um, when you enforce a consequence, be careful with your words. As a matter of fact, keep your words 
very few words. Set the consequence and don't lecture. They're not going to hear the lecture, and it'll probably um, null the, con the, the um, effects of the consequence. The words are for later. And also empathize with your child when you enforce a consequence. Um, you know, it hurts. And so again, above all else, relationship. Remember, we want to keep that relationship. The consequences hurt. Let's, you know, if you have some empathy for them, yeah, it does hurt. I'm not going to take the consequence away, but I know it hurts. Um, and then allow your children to learn from their consequences while they're young. Uh, I know it's really hard to let your child go to school without their lunch or, you know, to let them freeze when they don't take their jacket. But if we don't allow them to have those consequences, they tend to be um, more severe when children are older. Um, and we all know that teens can get into way more trouble than little kids. So um, if they experience the consequences when they're younger, um, they may not have to experience more severe consequences as they grow older. Okay, then um, the next slide. We have been building their self-confidence from infancy, infancy, telling them they are loved, skillful, and capable. And a foul-up, regardless of how serious on their part, doesn't change anything. They must know that and be told that message continually. We are constantly giving messages to our kids, but the overriding message must be one telling them that they are okay. Not only okay, but they're loved unconditionally. This is a quote from... Um, parenting with love and logic. The third point that I want to make is be the role model for your kids. Be the role model of what your kids want to be. Um, Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey way back, I don't know, 700, 800 BC, it behooves a father to be blameless if he expects his child to be. Okay. Um, and another quote, children are natural mimics who act like their parents despite every effort to teach them good manners. <laughs> so we really do, we all know that, but, you know, we, um, we know that we're models and we're role models and um, we just, what kind of atmosphere is in your home? Is it a warm atmosphere? Is it an atmosphere where it's a safe place? Um, so many of us, have grown up with good role models, parents who have been good role models, and we can pass that on to our kids. Others of us have grown up you know, in, in a home where we haven't had really good role models. So how are we to role model when we haven't had a good role model of parenting ourselves? And um, that's where I turn to the Gospels, and I look at Jesus as our role model. Uh, read through the Gospels, and again and again, you see Jesus as the servant leader. Matthew 18:4. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Children weren't con considered very high on the status uh, uh, scale back in biblical times, and so lowly position means to humble yourself. Um, and then John 13:3 and 5. This one I just think is amazing. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So there is the statement is, Jesus has everything under his power. Jesus is God. And then we see just after that, um, 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So here's God humbling himself and washing the feet of his disciples. There's the servant leader. Um, and that's the kind of model we need to be for our kids. I know that might seem fairly general. I hope your questions might get more specific. But he is our ultimate role model. And so now, um, very quickly, a few words on grandparenting. I don't mean to diss grandparents in putting this last. Um, but in the short amount of time that I have, I had wanted to uh, get some grandparenting in here. Um, a quote, grandchildren are a gift from parent to grandparent. Um, and that is so tr true. Grand grandchildren are a gift from the parents. So um, the first tip that I want to uh, share with you is understand your role as grandparent. It's a new, sometimes it, it becomes a new role. You've got a, a new position, a new role to take on, and you've been so used to being a parent, and now you're a grandparent. That's a huge transition. So in order to try to understand your role as grandparent, ask family members for their input on your role as grandparent. What is my role? What do you consider my role to be? Um, I think that's really good in communicating. Hey, what, what do you want from me? How can I be the best grandparent? for your children and, and the best support for you as a parent. Um, respect the parents' rights and allow them to make mistakes. Again, it's so hard for us as parents to make our, allow our kids to make mistakes, but then we have to continue as a grandparent, I feel, to allow our kids to make mistakes with their kids. That, I can imagine, is really hard to allow, um, but hopefully the parents will learn from their mistakes and give advice when asked. Uh, make time in your schedule for the parents and the grandchildren. Um, some grandparents are still really busy, and um, sometimes it's hard to make time in your schedule, but they really want your time as a grandparent. It's so special. And then relax with grandchildren. Be spontaneous and enjoy them. Don't have to have a plan with them. They just want to be with you, and that relationship makes memories. So finally, um, again, I'm just going to go back to above all else, relationship. The big umbrella is your relationship with each other and as a family. Um, this quote, you will always be your child's favorite toy. They just want you. And the final quote, kids spell love, T-I-M-E. So time with you is the most important thing that you can give your children. So um, the two books that I've uh, recommended are the two books that um, a lot of this information is from. I highly recommend The Whole Brain Child. Um, excellent book from cover to cover. A very quick read. Um, Parenting with Love and Logic is a little bit older. I think it's like published in uh, 90. Um, I agree with a lot of it. I don't agree with all of it. But we all have... Um, the logical side of our brain, so um, there's some good things that you can pick out of that. So thank you. Thank you. Would you join me in thanking Roxanne? Thank you. That was tremendously outstanding. Thank you for setting us for a very good discussion this evening. In fact, let's jump right into some of the questions that relate to this. And this one's a very practical question to begin with. How do you deal with a teenager boy a teenage boy, excuse me, who disrespects his mom but not his dad. How do you deal with a teenage boy who disrespects his mom 
but not his dad? How would you respond to that? It's a very good question. We've seen it frequently. It's not that uncommon, unfortunately. Uh, I've always felt like it was dad's responsibility to maintain respect. And I know that moms tend to be somewhat softer usually and sometimes spend more time with the children, therefore are taken advantage of more often. But I think it's dad's gift to mom to enforce that respect. And since he already has that respect from the children, just to make sure that that's transferred over to mom. And that can be done in, in very subtle ways, just in the way dad treats mom, the way he insists the child to treat mom as well. So maybe starting with the other parent, to make sure even if it's inverted, that the other parent would respect the other child's parent. Is that what you're starting with? Yes. Okay. Any other thoughts, feedback related to that? I think it's um, good for maybe dad to sit down and, and talk with the son about the importance of respecting mom and both parents. And then for both parents, whenever the son does show any kind of respect to his mom, to reinforce that. So to look for any opportunities where he is being respectful and then take those as opportunities to reinforce that and say, you know what, That's, I love how you talk to your mom that way or appreciate the way that you said that to me. I really do. That's, that's talking respectfully and I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So again, it's back to modeling how to show empathy to the child constantly in an instruction mode. And when I say that, not as a professor or teacher, but that they're always teaching moments as a parent. And I think you were suggesting that, Roxanne. And then, is it, is it true as close to the event as possible will help to reinforce the development of the child. Can we speak to that for just a moment? Am I correct in that? That you, you want to do what uh, Dr. Price, you just said, and that is to, to, reinforce, to reinforce what the child is doing maybe in the area of respect. And is it true to do that as close to the event as possible? We cannot always do that, but is that true? And if so, why is that important? Can we talk about that? Because sometimes we'll say, well, maybe I'll talk about it uh, tomorrow. We have a little more time. Uh, rather than maybe dealing with it as close in proximity to the event. What do you think about that? Uh, I would agree with that. Um, and if we're going to talk about it, again, here's the rational and the emotional. If the event is an emotional event and the child is angry and you're angry, um, there needs to be sort of this connection with that emotion and understanding. And so there, you know, in order to, to sit down and talk with them, we all know what it's like to, you know, try to argue with each other when we're really emotional. No one's going to hear each other. So if we're talking to a teenager, gosh, what, 90% of the time it's so hard just to get through to them. So yes, in that event, let's talk about connecting. Let's talk about, okay, hey, you're, you know, maybe you were mad. Maybe, you know, let's, let's I can get that. I get that. But we need to talk about what we can do to be respectful and, and, um, so yeah. So why is it, let's talk about that for just a moment. Why is it so important in dealing with parenting that I was suggesting deal with it as close to the event as possible. However, if I'm emotive and I have a lot of emotion at that point in discussion, what does the child experience if I'm doing somewhat of what you just said, Roxanne? I'm emoting a lot of emotion. Wow, you know, I just don't like what you did. But, and so I'm showing a lot of emotion. What tends to happen to the child if I'm emoting or I'm showing a lot of emotion toward the child, what's happening to the child at that point? 
because we may need to give a little bit of distance so that we can calm down. Um, certainly not, I mean, that's not new to any of us, <laughs> needing a little bit of time perhaps, um, except for God himself, is that to have a little bit of distance. But what happens to the child? It depends on the age, but what typically happens to the child if you're showing emotion and they're listening to you talk about an, an instructional moment, however, they're taking on that emotion? What's happening? Well, if you're talking about negative emotion that you're, or any emotion, if you're both in an emotional state, I, I, I think they just shut down, shut you out, and they're not hearing anything. Um, and at that point, I would say that's when, if that emotional state comes, I, I say that's a really important time for you to take a time out until you can get into your mm. calm, maybe adult self, not the teenage level with the, the child, and then reinforce the positive. I think that's what you're getting at. Mm -hmm. When the positive happens, try to reinforce that as close to the moment. Mm -hmm. And I almost feel like when you mirror the negative, that's reinforcing the negative and then proving almost the point to mm -hmm. them that you're awful and you, you know. Yes. So I'd say yeah, reinforce the positive and don't ignore the negative when you're dealing with teenagers is what I'd say. Mm -hmm. that, I mean. Mm -hmm. I think it's true. Yeah. I was going to say also I think it, it can escalate so that if my child's upset and then I get upset and then they get more upset then what we're doing is going up the emotional mountain and it's really hard to come down because both of our the emotional centers of our brain are off kilter. And I love how you said a timeout, because sometimes we as adults need timeout mm -hmm. to say, you know what, we're not going to talk about this right now. I, I need to go in the other room <laughs> for yeah. a little bit. And maybe you need to calm down too. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about it in a logical, rational way. And we're going to problem solve. But right now, neither one of us are problem solving. Um, mm -hmm. And we need to stop before we escalate this anymore. So my central nervous system's already escalated and I'm already hyper at that point. How do I, as a person, discipline myself to do exactly what you just said, Joe? And that is to say, I think I need a timeout. How do you do that once you've already engaged your emotional system to that level? What would be some suggestions that you would give, even to your clients or, or your students at the university? Number one, deep breathing. Okay, number one, <laughs> deep breathing. Okay. We, we tell our foster parents, because in our parent training with foster parents, is to have a place, a safe place you can go, mm -hmm. another room, there's a chair, there's a, a space that you can go to that you've identified ahead of time. Good. That's your place to go to. Um, and then take a deep breath, or there even count to yourself to do that. Good, good. And when you do blow it, and we all will, that Thanks. I thought we were doing so well on this. I <laughs> no. Just, <laughs> I, you know, I think we all live in the real world, and it's easy yes. to sit here and say, it's just, you, um, and it's wonderful. The more you practice it, the better you get at it. Um, if you've been raised in this atmosphere where there's constant conflict and arguing, it's going to be really difficult to, uh, to ratchet that down. You can do it but it's going to really take some time. And so let's assume that you are going to blow it every once in a while, and then you can model how to make those repairs to the relationship. When you go to, the, when you go to your child, and this is difficult, but I think, I think it's really rich for the child when the parent comes to them and says, look, I was really out of line, mm -hmm. I blew it, and I want to ask your uh, forgiveness, I apologize. 
that is wonderful for the kids. And uh, so it actually can become a, a great opportunity to bring uh, healing and modeling what it looks like to repair a relationship. So you had to speak directly to me because I had to do that with my son this week. I used the word, please forgive me, Daniel, for an undisciplined statement. And we will blow it and we will make mistakes. It's taking the posture of a humbled posture that only Christ can help us to do and saying, I, you know, I, that was an error. I, I did not mean that. I did not intend that. And will you forgive me? That models helping all of us to, help, to actually self-regulate. And actually, it's one of the great skills, and you, you uh, bolded the word empathy. When we have empathy, we can self-regulate, which means that I won't tend to do that as often, you know, to, to, to go to this high state of, of emotion. Let's go right to a, a question that ties right into this discussion. At what age range can we expect our children to integrate their emotional side with their logical side? At what age range can we expect our children to integrate their emotional side with their logical side, which is what we were talking about. Now, I'm not talking about when I say what age for an adult, but for a child. I'm moving back just a little bit here. But for a child, what age would that be? And tell us a little bit about that. You might be better off to answer this. Um, from everything, I'm not the child psychologist, as, um, but from everything that I've, I've read about age four, we can, they can start, they're still very, young children are still very emotionally, you know, we just have to understand that and, and recognize that, but we can start training them by doing just, just that, that connect and redirect, connecting. And so, no, they're not going to be thinking logically, you know, oh, so I see what you mean, mom, what, you know, <laughs> um, but yeah, but you can start very early and, and they do have that rational side of the brain. It just has to, you know, be, be trained. And so um, I think you can start at an early age. And that's, and that's the age that when, you, when you're looking at development of the frontal cortex and, and logical thinking is around age four that starts to take off. So as kids are moving into elementary school, they're beginning to think more logically. Uh, one of the examples or one of the pieces of evidence for that for you as parents is when kids are starting to play games with rules. They love games with rules during this time. So they're starting to use logic and problem solving, and now they can start incorporating that with emotion. Their, their brain's still going to be behind the emotional, the emotional side, always be ahead of the logical side until adolescence and even early adulthood. But they can start integrating during, during elementary school. I think that's, yeah, and starting at age four. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. There's a second part of this question that I might tie into. It says, what, same, same person writing the question, the first one, at what age range can we expect our children to integrate their emotional side with their logical side? The second part of the question is, what can a parent do with a highly intelligent teen, but one who has little common sense? Isn't that all teens? No, I'm just saying, but, okay, but has little common sense. What can a parent do with a high, you notice I didn't laugh at that because I have two teens, Robin and I do, but what can a parent do with a highly intelligent teen, but one who has little common sense? This may tie into what you're talking about in the, the brain development, and then as we watch them, and, and Dennis, you even have grandchildren, and, and uh, you've seen it from many different viewpoints, but how would you all respond to this? What can a parent do with a highly intelligent teen, but one who has little common sense? 
Well, common sense comes through experience. Yes. And we're, we're not going to get a lot of common sense, but the, the advantage there is, is that you have a very intelligent teen who is able to logically move through. If, if we do this, then this is happens, and then that happens. And so there is some advantage to that, but it can be a very challenging thing working with an intelligent teen. Um, but I personally, I, I, they're a delight to work with because they just, they're right there and usually sometimes two or three steps ahead of you. Um, so uh, common sense is something that just kind of has to be learned. My dad used to call it the school of hard knocks. Mm. And uh, sometimes children, uh, depending on their, um, their temperament, will gain from your experience and learn from that. And sometimes they just have to learn it on their own. Could we get real practical with it? That's a great introduction to it, and, and it helps us to see kind of an overall and intricate part of it. What are some practical ways that we do? Just what you helped us to see so clearly, Dennis. What would be some practical ways to help that intelligent teen uh, be able to utilize what you're suggesting, that more common sense? I think helping sometimes those teens, and I, my experience with that was my best friend in high school was this intelligent teen who had no common sense. Um, <laughs> and we had to tell him, Bill, we're done talking now. Let's go home. And you need to open the car door and get into it. Because <laughs> he was always talking about something very creative and very you know, esoteric. Um, but I think helping kids say, okay, today, let's plan out your day. What are going to be some things that you're going to get done today? And have them actually plan it out so that they have a schedule and they have a routine and say, okay, here's some things that we're going to try to get done today and for you and have them write out their schedule for the day. Very practical things to do. Here's where I'm going to do my homework. Here's where I need to go to work. And, and just kind of lay out a plan and have them follow that plan and say, look, you know, things work better when you have a plan. Things work better when you have kind of this logical way of doing things as opposed to just kind of as a creative individual doing it whenever you want to or however you feel. So I think helping them to plan out their day may be one way to do it. So is it true with what we're talking about intelligent children? They tend to be so focused on their creativity or a thought about something that they may not be able to look more comprehensively, which I believe is what you're suggesting, Joe. So if we can look in terms of these practical steps, almost kind of thinking out the day, not that you, I'm thinking of what you said, Roxanne, not that we want to pre predetermine it because we want them to make more decisions on what they're going to do, but helping them to maybe think through it. I think that's what you were saying. Absolutely. Have them involved. Absolutely. Yeah. In problem solving and not you giving them a schedule. Okay. All right. This next question, and thank you. This one goes into a little bit of uh, how would you refrain or even punish a child? I, I guess uh, discipline what might be a different word than what's on the page here, but it says, what's the best way to punish? Can I, can I change that? What's the best way to discipline the preteen 11 through 13, smart mouth towards parents and siblings? I'm sure that's the only house in this building where that happens, but what's the best way to do this rather than punish, but discipline the preteen? We don't want to be punitive, so I'm kind of removing that word if I may. What's the best way to discipline the preteen 11 through 13? The smart mouth towards parents and siblings. This is a great question. In fact, there's another question, and that is, should we use capital, I mean, corporal punishment? Should we use corporal punishment with children? So there's a dual question here. I'm using another one that's, that's, uh, that's a really bad joke. Uh, but anyway, uh, 
this first part of it, what's the best way to discipline the preteen? 11 to 13, smart mouth towards parents and siblings. And then should we entertain uh, corporal punishment? I can't quite get it out right, so we'll make sure I do this time. Um, it's a twofold question. How would you respond? Well, when you, one of the things I, I say to parents is think about all of those ways in which you can discipline and, and correct your child. Think of them as tools. And the more tools you have on your belt, the better. Uh, the old saying, if, if all you have is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. And if, if your only solution uh, to, um, to discipline your children is uh, a spanking or timeout uh, or, you know, a removal of, um, of privilege, if you only have one tool, then every problem looks the same. And so one of the things that I would encourage parents to do, especially as the children get older, because your discipline, what worked good when they were four or five, isn't working too good at 11 and 12. Uh, so get more tools, uh, figure out uh, what works best with your child. I think that having, I only, we only had two children, but they were totally different. Uh, with my daughter, I used to say I could just look at her and she would burst into tears. Uh, with my son, it, was, it took a whole lot more than that to get his attention. So you, you do happen, you, you do have as parents an opportunity uh, not only to vary those, uh, those, those means of correction, but to also understand the individual personality of the child. So don't think of it as a single tool or two tools, but a multitude of tools that you can use uh, as a parent with your child. Let's talk about the tools. Those are great ones. Help us with some other tools that would be useful because that, that's such a good point. We can get so focused on maybe one or two ways of responding that oftentimes become disuseful because of overuse or over-functioning with it. What would be some other tools? Well, um, one thing I was thinking is at that age, I think the when we get into our own frustration and anger at them, it almost it seems to do the opposite because there's something within their personalities where all of a sudden they come from sweet little kids into these eye-rolling attitude, you know, that there's just a shift within them. And I, I find it with this age group, it really works best to, to do that, kind of the distance. And I think of the Love and Logic book, the idea of where the separating out and giving them, like, the choices where you can be firm and kind. If you choose to, you know, roll your eyes or choose to talk like that, this, you know, these are your, these are your options. This is what's going to happen. And so it's like in their choice of acting like this, they're going to have such and such consequence. And so the consequence really needs to be something that feels bad for them, but it's still their choice instead of you doing the corporal type punishment. In my mind, I would think that would be more effective overall because they're, it's still in their choice and they still have the power, but so they're choosing their behavior. Does that make sense? I think you're referring back to the book that you have at the end of this uh, the presentation that uh, Dr. Foster Klein would suggest as early as possible to have that level of choice yes. for a child because it's building all of those qualities that are listed in your PowerPoint and in the handout. And I think that's what you're suggesting. 
Don't you like the idea of with teens, they like to shock you, don't they? Because the reason they like to shock you is they're learning to fully individuate because now they're taking charge of their world. And if you go into the shock mode, like, ah, you know, why, don't say that, or why did you say that? Then they're like going, wow, I'm kind of in control of dad now. Uh, that doesn't happen maybe 10 times a day for me, but otherwise I'm pretty good. But that, that idea of maybe posturing even in front of the mirror yourself and just acting like the child is on the other side of the mirror and you look at yourself and just kind of, oh. And you give a non-response so that they are reflecting on what they said rather than enjoying the shell shock that you're experiencing by the event. Is that sort of what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah, give us, thank you. Oh, Go did ahead. you want an example? Oh, I thought, I didn't know if you wanted, like I'm just thinking of an example of, because otherwise you're, you're almost playing that game that they're, they're wanting in a way, you know, ah, then you're going back and forth as opposed to, oh, all right, you're going to, oh, okay, you want to do that? Go in your room until you're done. Or, oh, if you're going to choose to do that, you're going to, you know, you can't go to Johnny, you're going to have to not go to baseball practice tonight. Oh, then I'm going to get in trouble with the coach. Well, then you're going to have to choose not to roll your eyes, you know. So it's really calm. You stay detached. There's no fighting and yelling. It, it's quite a peaceful, I mean, it's easier. I'm making it sound like it's this easy, lovely thing, and it's not. Yeah, do you have a recording? I can just play that. <laughs> I could practice that. Breathing and practicing, because it's well said. So that would just, at that age, could be my suggestion, rather than the battle back and forth. And I, I, Don, when you were talking about you know practicing responding, I think that's really important. Um, so many times, our response gets kids' attention, and they'll do it again to do that. And, and one of the things that I was taught by a clinician at the Oregon Social Learning Center is a really good response when teens are out of control is just go, huh. Now that has a way of just draining all the air out of the balloon when they're just wanting to argue. Um, and the other, the other piece of this we're talking about in terms of tools for discipline, I think it's important, and let's take the example of uh, being a smart mouth, is for us to think not just for what's going to be the discipline for that, but to think what behavior do I want to see? Mm. What's the opposite? Well, the opposite, I want them to talk respectfully. And so we're thinking about that's the goal I, I'm shooting for, is for them to talk respectfully, to talk politely. And so when they do that, when they show that kind of behavior, that's what we want to reinforce and do that immediately. And at the same time, we have the consequences for when they don't. So we're doing them together and that the discipline by itself doesn't really teach kids what to do. It, it just says, don't do this, but it doesn't say, this is what I want you to do. And so I think it's important that whenever we're, th you know, we're dealing with situations where kids aren't talking respectfully, they're bad-mouthing, is to think, well, what do I want them to do? How do I want them to talk? And demonstrate it for them, tell them, this is what I expect. This is, what, this is how people who care about each other talk to each other. And when you show that kind of respect to each other, it just grows in our family. And then when they demonstrate it, then you go, that's it. That's what I'm talking about. Thank you very much. And then when they don't, we, you know, it, it, first of all, ignore it and say, well, there's a consequence too. Go pull the weeds <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. There you go. And so it's important if I'm hearing the discussion that we not allow our own emotion to override the ability for the child to sit in and with their own emotion. In other words, to do self-reflection. So if we are emoting, like, I really like that, where you just said, huh, I, and I think I can do that, huh, and, and then sit there for just a moment. 
is that um, it seems like a teenager is highly developing in the area of, of wanting to get attention, and that's why they tend to like comedy, um, and they want to be funny. So they're trying to get emotion from other people in a way. So if we just go, hum, or however you did it, you did it better than I am, is that there's a sense where the, the other person, who is the teenager, is able to do a little bit of self-reflective of perhaps the goal that you have for them because they don't know their goal oftentimes. Is that what I'm hearing you say, Joe? Part of it? Mm -hmm. One of the things I would say with, to my teenage, when my son was a teenager, was is you can say whatever you want to us as long as you say it with respect. And I think that that's part of the frustration of a teenager. They just don't feel that they can be honest. They can speak uh, what is, whatever is on their mind. And so I kept reinforcing to him, you can say to us whatever you want as long as you say it with respect. And it's just, it's interesting how that, all that tension kind of goes out and then they, there's that pause and, huh, okay, I can, I can say this and I can say that and yeah, as long as you say it with respect. And mm -hmm. that way the, the communication continues to stay open because I want to hear what my child has to say. I want to hear about their frustrations and I want to hear their anger, but I, I also want it within those, those boundaries of respect. Mm -hmm. And both of your children know the Lord today and, and are serving. Well, my him. son is serving with me as a, my associate pastor. Mm -hmm. so. Wonderful advice. This, this question, to tie into what we're talking about, leads us a little further to grandparenting and discipline. So if you can listen to this question, it'll help us to uh, respond to probably questions that the audience may have. When is it appropriate for a step-parent, or a grandparent, but a step-parent to hand out enforced consequences? That's a tough question. I first said grandparents, this is referring more to step-parenting, but when is it appropriate for a step-parent to hand out enforce consequences? Very good question. Usually when I get an in-depth question, we kind of have to think about it for just a moment. We're practicing the uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, we're, we're practicing the, aren't we? So when is it appropriate for a step-parent to hand out enforce consequences? There really has to be a lot of communication between the parents before that ever happens. Uh, blended families, especially, and I don't, from the question, I can't tell whether uh, we've taken two families and blended them together or whether we've just added a step-parent. But in either case, there needs to be a lot of communication about how that discipline is going to be handled and who's going to be doing it. There can be... Um, a step-parent can be a wonderful addition to the family. I think we sometimes have gotten a negative a stereotype, but they can be a wonderful addition and take some of the pressure off of the other parent who perhaps has been a single parent for a long time. But there needs to be that communication between the parents. When is it appropriate? When is it going to work? And then that needs to be communicated to the children as well. Otherwise, it feels as if the step-parent is going into territory that uh, really doesn't belong to them. Okay. We've heard people talk about, is it best for the parent, the biological parent, to do the majority or all of the discipline? or as maybe you were suggesting, Dennis, and you didn't say this, but suggesting if there's enough conversation, enough talk, enough understanding in the family that the step-parent uh, step in and help to enforce uh, discipline and management uh, of, of the children. What do you think? 
I think it also depends on how long that step-parent has been mm -hmm. in the family um, because a step-parent can be seen as the parent. Mm -hmm. And so it depends on the relationship with the step-parent and um, you know the age of the kids when the, the step-parent became that step-parent. And um, from what I understand, this is a, this is a touchy subject. It can go either way. From yeah. what I understand, when children are older and the step-parent comes in, they're coming into their, their territory, their boundaries, and they really aren't seen as the parent. And so, um, you know, it, in that situation, it really is the biological parent who needs to set the boundaries and set the, you know, the discipline and that, because these, the kids, don't see that person as their parent. They have another parent. Mm -hmm. They have that, um, and so I, I really think it depends on the age of the children, how long, how young they were when that that step parent came in, what kind of relationship they have with that parent, and how they view that parent. Are you know, you're you're not my dad, or you know, mm -hmm. it can cause a lot of issues if that step parent is enforcing consequences or discipline when they maybe are not in that role yet, so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This next question uh, talks about a real practical thing about clean rooms, which we know all teenagers have clean rooms. <laughs> How can I encourage my child to clean her room? I realize I did not start the practice early. Okay. What do we do at that point? So if I'm understanding the question, it was probably the person that laughed the most, but how can I encourage my child to clean her room? I realize I did not start this practice early. What would be some practical steps, ways in which we could help in this? I can Dennis. tell a story about my wife sitting right down here. Um, we, our son hated to clean his room, and so especially when he became a, uh, a young teen and into teenage years, it became just like this source of conflict in the home. Uh, always there. Every time mom would walk by, well, not every time, but when she would walk by the door, you know, Dennis, when are you going to clean your room? Get in here and clean your room. And finally, I said, um, why don't we just close the door and stop looking at it? And we did that, and I would like to say there was perfect peace from that point onward, but <laughs> it, it, at least, it at least cut it off from us. We didn't have to live with it anymore, and mom didn't have to, it wasn't a constant reminder to her. Um, and, and lo and behold, every once in a while, he, we call it a clean, clean freak. He would just all of a sudden spend the whole day cleaning his room. So it wasn't like it was in a constant mess, but for me, that's not worth having constant conflict in the family about. Uh, pick your battles, I think, as a parent. Pick the battles that you want to really fight. And for us, for me, uh, a clean room wasn't a battle I wanted to fight all the time. Does this tie into the fact of parents that they may be trying to invite, not you and Ruth, but you, you, we may be trying to work through our own pathogenic, our own past, our own woundedness by certain things in the home. So say I grew up in a home where there was lots of anxiety and everything had to be perfect. So then I have children and then I have, have a son or a daughter, or in this case it was your son, who has a messy room. And so when I walk by that room, I just get the same anxiety I did as a child. You know, everything needed to be perfect. And if it's not perfect, I have a lot of anxiety. 
Do we as parents get caught in those types of situations? I had several nods here from these therapists. What's going on there if that happens? Because you said, did you say pick your battles? Not, you know, not, yeah, pick your battles, which is significant, isn't it? What happens there with this? I'm using pathogenic kind of issues from the past. So I'm trying to manage my child to lower my anxiety. What do we do with that? It kind of ties into what you were asking, or saying, excuse me, rather, Dennis. Stop nodding. Everybody stop nodding after I finish. <laughs> I, I'm wondering, are you talking about triggers? Are you talking about something that would trigger your past? Mm -hmm. you know, when kind you... of talking about that? Yes. Uh, okay. It's a very common thing I see in my patients. Yes. So... Yes. And I have a friend um, that's a trigger for her. Um, and so it does. It's, it's something that brings her back to her past. And when she sees that, and she has to deal with that. And uh, pretty much her kids have very clean rooms. Um, but that was from the very beginning. When it's a trigger like that, usually th this question is when I haven't been, you know, on them before and haven't, it hasn't been important and now it needs to become important or at least who is it important for? Yes. Um, so that's where the picking the battles is. Is this important for you as a parent or is it important for you that you feel like the, your child is, is um, really in need of learning how to keep things clean? Is this a behavior that goes on to, into other, other parts of your child's life? So I guess that's probably the, you know, is it your trigger? Is it something, is it your thing to deal with? Um, can you close the door and walk by? Um, so I guess that's where you have to determine, or is this something that you want to train your child to be neater? Because when they move out with roommates, they're gonna, she's going to get kicked out, or he, I, don't, I have a daughter like that. <laughs> we close the door. So, um, but yeah. Um, along those lines, I had a couple of thoughts. Um, first of all, I was thinking also look at your motivation. What's, why is it important? And from there, a couple of things that came to my mind because I was very messy in my house of very clean people. My parents bribed me, said, if you could keep your room clean for a week, we'll buy you a some really great bed I always wanted. I could not do it, or I would not. And so when you brought up that question, it made me start thinking, and I know my daughter's messy, we make her clean. <laughs> My husband makes her clean. We we're not really clean people, but um, <laughs> I'm never going to be a clean person my whole life. I'm though I know what did help. If you act, if it's if it's not just you have it's an anxiety producing thing for you, but it's just you know you want to teach her just to be a little neater. What did help was when my mom went in with me and helped me clean, and that's what I have to do with my daughter. My husband and son are very organized naturally. My daughter and I are not. So I, I need to go in with her. We have to go, and she needs me to walk. And she's 12. We have to go piece by piece, and it just helps her to have me kind of still do it with her. She can do it. It's not that great, but she now is able to do it better. But it may just be you being there with her if your motivation is just to have it done. So if that helps a little bit. It's very good. I was thinking as we were talking about it that sometimes I see in my patients their, their own anxiety is exacerbating the child's ability to accomplish what the parent is hoping the child will accomplish. 
Um, I'm wondering if your daughter, sometimes a, a child uh, may enjoy conversing with people, so focusing on the details of the room is not as enticing as talking to someone on the phone or texting or, and so they're, they're geared more towards that ability to connect with rather than accomplish or pragmatically accomplish. I was trying to suggest a little bit with our question and broadening it a little bit that some parents, some parents may respond in a way, again, that causes the child to do the exact opposite. So one of the things we do is we ask the question, how will my response to this child benefit the child, help the child to move in the direction to which we hope they're moving? I think, Joe, you had even said that. And, and come alongside, like you're saying, Aaron. But what, what do you say to a patient who comes in and asks this question about a child, and you realize that their reaction to the child is creating more problems for the child? What do you do? How do you respond to a patient like that? I thought it was a good question, but maybe not. It was... Would you perhaps, I'm trying to, if I can lead it a little bit, because yeah. my question may not be clear enough, is that um, might help to reflect on when you say something to your child or you respond, have you ever looked in the mirror and seen what you look like? What does the child see? How does the child hear you? What is the child feeling from your expression or non-expression or your eye expression or whatever it may be, facial expression? Because so much of us is nonverbal. How would you help the parent? Because we have parents out here and grandparents. How would you help them to recognize their own, I call it pathogenic, I mean their own woundedness that's being triggered? Back to my illustration, if I grew up in a family where there's lots of anxiety, unless everything was put away, and now I got to have everything put away, or I have a little bit of anxiety, and so then I'm expressing that onto my children. Well, I think it begins with observation and, and describing so that the parent goes home and, say, you know, and we say, listen, um, what I want you to do is I want you to notice how your child reacts when you respond this way. Mm -hmm. Because we often get caught up in the moment and we're not thinking about watching what's happening. And, and to say, let's figure this out. Let's figure out what's going on here. Mm -hmm. um, and I want you to observe yourself. And I want you to observe your child. When you respond this way, how are they responding? Mm. And let's see if we can kind of figure out how what you might be saying might be triggering something negative in them. Mm. And then let's work on how you might respond differently. But I think it really begins by observation of ourselves and just describing what's going on so that they're aware of what's going on. Then we can go from there and problem solve in terms of what needs to be changed. Wonderful. So. I, uh, tying on to that, one of the questions I like to ask is, especially when they are expressing the same sort of behavior that their parents, my dad yelled at me, now I am, I'm yelling at my child. And one of the questions is not only um, how your child is responding, but how did you respond? What were your emotions? What were you feeling when your parent was doing that to you? And then it's like a light goes on and it's like, 
oh, yeah, I remember. It, I felt terrible, or I got angry, or I really, you know, I, I really withdrew. Um, and, well, maybe your child is experiencing the same kind of emotion as that you had. Mm-hmm. And I think anytime we can connect that person with the emotion that the child is feeling, whether thinking generationally or thinking in the moment, I think is very valuable. Thinking about what we're experiencing and feeling, kind of back to Dennis, you're saying that, Joe, you're suggesting that. Giving opportunity to reflect. I, I still think in the Gospels, Jesus did this so frequently. He would ask what seemed to be the obvious. You're blind, but what would you like for me to do for you? Or you can't get up. What would you like for me to do for you? He gave opportunity for people to self-reflect. It's one of the greatest gifts we have as human beings is to reflect, to think, have that ability. So I think that's what's being suggested here. I'm going to make a switch because of our time here. We have just a, a few minutes left. But this next question is so powerful and one that is actually the information we breach this so often I see in families. How much information should your child know about the parent's financial situation? I heard that parents should not share their struggles with their children, but I don't know if that advice is grounded in any solid evidence or fact. Now, of course, this is going to depend upon the age, the emotional development, spiritual development of the the child, but how much information should your child know about the parent's financial situation? We could broaden that to also other areas of the parent's life. How would you respond? I think this is just a fabulous question. Because we want to stay integrated with our children, and they're very curious, and yet what could be damaging or not helpful to them? Keep in mind that we tend to want to ask the question, how will my response, how will my words, how will my spiritual life impact this child? What do you think about this? How much information? Well, I think the important question is, what do they need to know? Um, you know, do they really need to know all the in a, all the details of the financial situation? Is that is that a stress we want them to carry? Mm. I mean, kids have enough on their plate as it is without us saying, "Well, I'm going to divulge to you what our finances are." Mm-hmm. And I think it really depends if we're using it as an example for problem solving, and it and it's not a real heavy situation. And say, you know, we're trying to make a decision on what car to buy or whether to buy a car, and we just want you to hear kind of the problem solving process we're going through, I think that can be educational. But if the parents are really struggling financially, I'm not sure how much detail the kids need to know, aside from the fact, you know what, we need to tighten our belts a little bit, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to be able to do all the things that we used to or that you guys would like to. That's just the reality. We don't have that money anymore. Um, and I think parents have to think, well, why would I want them to know? They, mm-hmm. they have enough stresses of their own without me putting that on them. And I'm not sure those financial burdens are something we need to, we need to shoulder, uh, we need to have our kids shoulder with us. So the old adage is uh, a need to know on a need to know basis. I would say so, yeah. yeah. Yes. If it's a teachable moment and you, know, and you want to teach them a lesson about something and problem solving, handling finances, and it's not going to create a burden where they're going to you know, be up late at night worrying about it, mm-hmm. then that's fine. But I'm not sure they need to know much beyond that. I mean, that's just... So one of our goals as a parent or grandparent is not to create more anxiety for the child. The child probably has enough anxiety, but to create, rather, excuse me, to create teachable moments is what I'm hearing. Constant teachable moments 
with, with the child and the ability for the child to uh, self-reflect. Yeah. Anyone else on that particular question, information? Um, I think it's important to um, recognize why, if you do want to tell your child some, this kind of information, why do you want to tell them that? What is the purpose of telling them some more, for giving them more information? And I'm thinking what popped into my head specifically is for a single parent, you know, if there's financial constraint and that parent, you know, um, needs to talk to somebody, oftentimes a, like a teen or, you know, they're kind of a partner in a way in, in that kind of relationship. So you can't really see them as a partner. They're still a child. And so um, for a single parent to find somebody else to be able to talk to about the financial difficulties to kind of help them, you know, talk it out. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if that's the case, but that's what popped into my head is just what is the purpose of telling the child more um, information? So we probably need to think a little more deeply about our children and how we're going to respond when we're not with them even kind of think about those things. Erin, were you going to? Yeah, um, what I was thinking was if they're asking questions, um, it seems like, you know, to give answers that are informative or, um, I, you know, I have some thoughts. I can give an example, but what came to mind as being very important is to not be confiding and to not be burdening, especially if there's, you know, troubling. And I think of, you know, family meetings where you may be talking about some important issues and that wouldn't, I wouldn't think that would not be a place where you'd want to share financial woes or other woes. Mm -hmm. um, yet if they're asking about why can't, you know, so-and-so, and, -so, and I ha we have this in our family where, oh, well, my friends, you know, they get to go to Hawaii five times a year and, mm -hmm. you know, they have this nice car and this and we don't have any of that. Yeah, well, we, we can't afford that. You know, I, I don't know if we say that directly, but it's just the facts and it doesn't change that we have perfectly wonderful life. But it doesn't burden them with, oh, no, we have, you know, so much less. Very well said. With our time uh, limitations, I'd like to invite you to join me in thanking our panel for their wonderful uh, presentation and discussion this evening. I apologize, we did not get through all the questions. However, we're out of uh, time at this point, and I would like to invite you to the next My Therapist Says, which is discovering yourself in relationships. It actually, uh, actually ties in ties into this, and you can see this, um, oh, getting marital needs met, excuse me, I have that wrong, April, I'm sorry, I had the wrong one, so we are getting marital needs met, that ties in as well, so that sounds great, <laughs> and uh, I'm the one that created those, but I just didn't have it to memory, so thank you, John, for helping me, so this is our getting marital needs met, that'll be uh, next April 3rd at 6.45, uh, and we do have this live streaming as well, uh, may I... Uh, have a word of prayer with us, and then we will close for the evening. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege, once again, of children. Uh, they bring joy to our life. They really are entertainment. They're so fun, and they're so creative. And to watch them develop is one of the greatest joys in all of life. And it can bring some of the greatest hurts to see them hurt or discouraged. So thank you for that privilege of having that kind of empathy for children that you have put in us Thank you for that. Thank you for this great panel, for these great people that are here working on their own relationship with children and, and as grandparents or parents. We bless you this night. Thank you for your keen insight. We will leave changed here tonight because of you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much for coming. Have a great, great evening.
cried out real loud, we won't be gone. We won't be gone. 